Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Good morning, and welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today, I'm your co-host, uh, Bruce Weiner. Uh, Rachel is actually taking the time right now uh, with her family, and she's also working on her legacy planning and the release of her book. So she's taking a week off here to focus on other things. And we have Cole Pickett, who was with us a couple of weeks ago, who is an esteemed associate of ours at the Money Advantage. So Cole's going to be um, asking some questions, clarifying some things that he sees with clients and and uh williams thanks for commenting already we want people to actually ask a lot of questions today because you know people get hung up on the strategy of ibc and just trying to figure that out and that's great and i always tell people don't overthink this this is a simple strategy that you could use with a lot of lot of different financial vehicles it just it just so happens that whole life is actually has most of what we call Swiss Army knife of things that you can do it with. And if you read Nelson Nash's book, um, the the inventor of the guidelines for the infinite banking uh, system, and his book is his first book was called Becoming Your Own Banker. He actually does mention that you could do different, you can use this strategy using different things. And we've talked about it on the podcast before, so we don't have to dive into that. But today we're going to talk about you really believe that that um, you really believe that you like this strategy, you want to use whole life. Now what? Now now what happens? So this is interesting and I want to I want to dive into this by talking about the whole part of it and then we'll we'll dig into the specifics. And once again, Please ask any questions that you have, and uh, we'll get those answered during the podcast. So the, f- the first thing is, I really believe that you should seek out a certified IBC practitioner from the Nelson Nash Institute. Obviously, we all love social media. We're on it right now. And there's a lot of people that have jumped on this bandwagon, what I would call the, with the IBC strategy because it is a really good strategy for most people. So uh, there have been a lot of influencers out there on all the the different social media platforms, whether it be YouTube, like we're mostly on today recording, but we're also on LinkedIn, Facebook. And, uh, you know, we, we also have a TikTok channel and Instagram channel. There's, there's a lot of different social media channels. And those people are are touting the benefits of IBC, which is great. However, a lot of them are not exactly, they don't know the nuances of a properly structured uh, IBC contract. And this is a contract. So I, you know, I just had a conversation with a person that's implementing a very large contract um, this week. And he kept saying, can they change this? Can they change this? Can they change this? And they can change it going forward. But once the contract is in place, it cannot be changed. And how do I know this? Because I actually have um, contracts 
prior to the modified endowment contract rules that the IRS put out in the middle 80s. And those particular contracts did not change at that time period. And Nelson actually talks about this, um, where he said that the reason they cannot change that is society will collapse because contracts are the backbone of any society. So if you just all of a sudden said, well, all these contracts that we have, we know they're legally binding, but we're going to change them. There would be a tremendous uprising in society that says, well, no, you, you actually promised this was going to happen. And now it changes. Nobody would have any faith in it, uh, the contract. So it would not change. So now let's talk about, so you've, you've, you've looked at the situation. Hopefully now you've picked a, a certified practitioner to walk you through this. Now you need to really say to the practitioner and make sure the practitioner, which all of them that I know are using a company that is supportive of the concept. Now, what does that mean to be supportive of the concept? Well, from previous podcasts, and you've probably seen over the internet, there are a couple of companies that actually have come out, even though they're mutual companies and you could do this with them, they've come out and they said, we don't agree with this. We don't want you to do this. Matter of fact, they've told the agents, if you continue to do this, even though their products allow it to happen, um, they have said that they will actually terminate your appointment. So to me, that's not, that's not really supporting the concept. So what I mean by supporting the concept, and we're not going to name because we try to say ag- agnostic on the, on the podcast, but there are five, six if you count the Canadian company that does it in Canada that have supported the Nelson Nash Institute, not only in the form of monetary support, but they've also supported them by actually sending representatives every year to the Nelson Nash think tank. Now, to me, that says a whole heck of a lot because they knew Nelson personally. They believed in the concept. They want this to be for their policyholders. So I would definitely look into, into that. And, oh, uh, Vox from, says from the St. Louis area, that's where uh, Cole and I are most of our, our lives. So nice to see you. Maybe we can get, in, maybe we can, uh, uh, get together sometime and we can talk uh, this. So thanks, thanks a lot for that. So after you've done this and you've talked to the practitioner, then they're going to show you a mutual company. And that mutual company means it's, it's actually owned by the policyholders. It's not owned by stockholders. And those stockholders, and the reason that's important is any, anybody can own the stock. They don't have to have a policy. And so the companies then are trying to keep their stock supported. And so they're going to make decisions for the company that are going to affect those particular policyholders that may not be in alignment with the policyholders because they're just trying to, to make sure the stocks and maybe a dividend for that particular stock is going to the stockholders. They don't, uh, and this may be a little harsh, but they may not take the policyholders' best interest in mind. I actually have one of my contracts is actually now with a stock company because, and I can mention this company because it's no longer in existence. My, one of my contracts that I had in the eighties was called Franklin Life and they demutualized in the nineties and they become a, they became a stock company. 
Now that's where I'm going with the next part because the next part is they should be a participating company, which means now exactly opposite of a stockholding company. A particip participating company means that you are participating in the profits of the company. So you're a mutual company. All the policyholders actually get to participate in the profits of the company. And the profits of the company then are, are actually paid out in a form of a dividend. And that dividend is then added to your cash value. And in some cases, it will, not in some cases, in the, in the best case scenario, we believe is that you then buy more paid up additions. And that's for another podcast, but that's why you want a participating company. Just think about it. You're participating in the profits of the company. Um, we tend to lean a little bit more to a non-direct recognition company than a direct recognition company. Although this concept can work with direct recognition companies. But let me tell you, let me show you the difference. So a non-direct recognition company, that particular company, if you have a loan against your cash value, they are not going to recognize that fact. And they're going to pay you the same dividend, whether you have a loan or not. On a direct recognition company, they're actually going to recognize that you have a loan and pay you nothing or a lower dividend on that portion that you have a loan. So let me give you some numbers. So let's say you have $200,000 of cash value. You've actually requested a loan for $100,000. Now, when it's time to give out the dividend, you're going to receive the full dividend on $100,000, the cash value that's still not collateralized. And you're going to receive a lesser or no dividend on the other $100,000 because you have it collateralized. And it is actually, uh, you have actually borrowed against that $100,000. So they're going to limit that dividend. Now, some people would say, well, why would you ever use that? Well, I've said this many times on the podcast is that, you know, there's no such thing as deals in the insurance industry. So what happens in a, with a non-direct uh, company, they may give you a slightly higher dividend and then they lower the other dividend on the part where, so the average comes out to the, approximately the same as the, um, of the uh, non-direct recognition companies. So it's a small point. If you plan on utilizing your policy a lot, which that's the whole purpose of putting in, then you may tend to lean towards the non-direct uh, companies. And the and the final thing that I have and I have in my notes here is you want a company that has really really good financials. And to me, really good financials would be a Comdex score, and that is a computation a compilation of all the different rating industries, whether it's AM, Best, Finch, Moody, they take them all together and give them one master score. And I believe that anything above, say, 85 is, is a safe score. I tend to think that above 90 is, is even a better situation. Well, obviously, it's better. But I mean, I, I do believe those companies have taken it very, very seriously. To protect your money, and you're never gonna you're never gonna lose your money totally, but they could demutualize. Like I had the experience with Franklin Life, 
it, that that contract's still paying me guaranteed interest. I just no longer get any dividends. So it's it's a good it's still a good contract. I still have it in place. I still pay on it. It's just the fact that um, you may want to have a company that you're likely not to demutualize. So those are the basic premise of how you pick a company. So Cole, what are the things uh, do you find that are on our client's mind when it comes to these kind of things? Well, typically, um, well, what I've what we found is a lot of the clients that that we've spoken to, um, they get really in the nitty gritty of the the illustration, comparing them the different companies. And although, like Bruce said, there's five, six, seven companies that are that are good and meet all the criteria he just spoke on. Uh, a lot of the problems we find is them. Uh, nitpicking and comparing illustrations as investments rather than as a uh, savings vehicle. Well, that's that's a really good point. And to, so to bring in another point for that, Cole, is illustrations are just snapshots in time. I've said that all the time. And they're actually projecting the current dividend all the way the, through the life of the contract. So if you're a 30-year-old going to age 121, you have 91 years that they're predicting that the dividends are never going to change. And dividends have changed throughout the 150, 60, 70 years of these, these companies. So to, to really worry about, you know, this dividend's a little higher with this company, which we've talked about this on the, on the show before, there is no set parameters or how dividends are declared. The company can determine that at all times. So if you're trying to t- figure out an internal rate of return by looking at the by looking at the the illustration, you actually can't do that. You, you can do it on the illustration, but you can't predict what it will be in the future because whether it's direct or non-direct, you're going to get a different um, calculation on that. Whether it's a skinny base or a very robust base, all the way up to an all base policy you're going to have differences if dividends change in the future. Now, this is a good time to talk about um, why that's important because dividends, we've already said you want a mutual company that is participating, and that means you're going to participate in the dividends. Dividends will be paid out differently in a different proportion according to how big the base policy is. So when we, it's impossible to look at one illustration that may have a skinny base, say 10%, and another one that has 60% base and say, oh, this policy is better. And I'm not even saying which one, the 10 or the 60 is better. It's impossible to say that because if interest rates go up, which I don't have a, a, a crystal ball, I just have logic. So if we had interest rates that were basically at zero for 12 years in unprecedented time, and most companies were able to maintain a dividend between 5 and 6%, then in the future, as interest rates have already risen, and more than likely will not be able to be held, and or because of wisdom, won't be able to be held for 10 or 12 years at zero. That means all the illustrations you're looking at are basically going to change in the near future anyway. So why would you base your decisions on illustrations? And then finally, 
a, if, if the base policy, and this is true, uh, we show our clients this all the time, is the biggest influencer on dividends, then a 60% illustration on the base would actually have increases much better than a 10% base would, would have in the future. So that's not, I'm not saying that's not, that is absolutely the way a person needs to go. We just don't believe that you should build it with a really skinny base because that violates Nelson's principles of think long-term. So if you're doing a really skinny base, you're not thinking long-term because you're saying, I want to have the cash available right now. You're, you're, uh, you're not, you're, you're kind of being afraid to capitalize because I heard people say, well, that way, if I can't capitalize the next year or the year after, I only have to put 10% into the contract. Well, then you're not working with an, a Nelson Nash practitioner that is making sure it's going to be comfortable for you. And people that do uh, the 10% base, the skinny bases, I've, I've found uh, the less base uh, that a contract has, the more people steal the peas. What that means is they don't pay the loans back, and that's problematic. And then they tend to then have to, to, to do the next one, which is don't do business with banks. And so they have to turn to a bank to get a loan because they haven't capitalized their own bank. Well, that's the whole point of this. And then finally, they haven't rethought their thinking. They're still, they're still caught up in the, in the regular financial thinking. So they haven't bought into the whole situation. So when we've established, we've established the companies, what the design should look like, so on and so forth. Now, in our organization, we have a couple of people, Stephanie, Riley, um, Jessica, that will take applications. And then we have other people like Cole, um, Becca, Joe, Connor. They are actually either actively helping people or in a client coordinator role to make sure that things are are moving along um, properly. So you say, this is great. This is great for me. I understand it. Now I want to move forward. So the first thing you need to know in our organization, and I believe everybody should be doing this, before you even have a discussion about the design, because we don't design it the same way for everybody, and that's one of the tenets of the Nelson Nash Institute. It's not one size fits all. So if, you, if you're with an organization that says, oh, we found the, the, the way to do this, and Nelson helped us, but he really was out of touch. I've heard this stuff all the time. Um, but we found the, the holy grail of how to do this. They'll only do that. You really should run because they are not doing things properly. They don't have your, in my opinion, they don't have your best interests in mind. You need to understand the person's financials. So if you're the person you're working with, if the person that you're working with is not taking a full financial picture. So, so a full financial picture means they need to know what your income is in the household. They need to know what your expenses are in the household. They know not only where your assets or what your assets are, but where they're laying. Okay. So they need to know that. That is, even though insurance producers are not considered fiduciaries, that is a fiduciary responsibility as far as I'm, I'm concerned. You're taking an interest in the client 
more than you're taking an interest in selling that particular policy. So you're going to ask all those questions. We have on occasion, Cole, we've had occasion people say, well, I don't know why you need that, or they don't return the information. You're familiar with that, right? Oh, yeah, <clears throat> definitely. And it's surprising to us whenever this comes across because a uh, implementing like a contract like the IBC, um, you really, it's a cash flow management tool. So you really need to understand the person's fi- whole financial picture in order to know how much premium they can put in and, and sustain because the last thing you want is for a policy to lapse or for them to want to surrender it. Yeah, very good. And, you know, people, people get excited about this concept because it, it gives you hope. Yep. Um, but what, I, what I've told people and I've actually turned people down where they said, oh, I'm in a lot of debt. I've heard from other people that you can use this to get out of debt. Now, theoretically, can you use this to get out of debt? Yes, because it's a cash management system. So you could fund the policy and then take those funds and go pay off your debt. But you don't have total liquid access to the entire part of your premium. So you're delaying getting out of debt. And I've seen people try this. I've actually helped people outside of the IBC strategy try to get out of debt. And I was talking to one of our associates yesterday, and I've been doing this for 30 plus years. And we actually have a system we try to go through. I've only had one person that changed their habits that they actually got out of debt by, by using a different cash management system. They didn't even use IBC at first because I told them that wasn't in their best interest. So that's the part that Nelson says you have to rethink your thinking. Okay. So if you, he, he's always, he's, I don't know if he was the um, originator of this, but he, he said, you can't solve a problem. And maybe it was Einstein that said this. You can't solve a problem by using the same thinking that got you into the problem. And that is a, that's why you have to rethink your thinking on how you're, you're living your life, how you're living your, your, your cash management of your life, even your mindset, okay? Because your mindset controls what you do and your habits that you um, establish. So in our organization, then what we do is, we have an application specialist actually call you after we've gotten all this information, they call you and take an application over the phone. Some states, you can do it by uh, yourself. They can just send you a link. You could fill out the application by yourself, but most uh, states still require an oral application by a licensed person. So these application takers are actually licensed to do that. If they're not licensed, that's a red flag for who you're working with. And you might want to ask them, are you licensed? And, and have them give you their license number so you can look it up. Because I believe some organizations are just using like administrative people to take applications and then putting that person's name on it. And that is not according to regulations. That's actually against regulations. So um, remember that. Oh, this also re- now I'm also uh, re- remembering something else that's against regulations that I see all the time, where they're sending you an illustration 
that is not a full illustration. If if it's if the last page doesn't say 17 of 17 or 19 of 19, and you haven't gotten 19 pages, you don't have the full illustration. If they're only pulling out two or three pages and sending you that illustration, that is against the regulations. And you got to ask yourself, why are they not telling me everything? Okay, so that's another red flag. So you take the application, and then that application goes to the company. And you can sign this, at least in our organization, you can. You can sign it by DocuSign. And every state's a little different for DocuSign. I believe now everyone has adopted DocuSign. It wasn't too long ago where some of them actually said you have to, you had to have an actual signature and you can still do that by scanning and emailing that signature. So just in case there is one or two uh, states out there yet, um, because I think I'm uh, appointed and licensed in about 30 states. So there are still 20 states that I'm not up on their actual rules and regulations. So you, you take the application, we take the application, it goes to the, the company, and the company then gives it to the underwriter. The underwriter has taken many, many years of schooling. They use uh, uh, standards in the industry. And that's why I tell people all the time is, you know, are you going to get a better rating from one company to the next? Probably not. Because they're using the same mortality tables, they're using the same standards throughout the industry. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Cole, if I forget, um, about table shaving. Um, I have it in my notes, but I might overlook it. So remind me, table shaving and what that means. So it goes to the underwriter. This actually, um, these underwriters, especially now, and this is a good thing, really, um, for for the industry, but it's not good for the individual. There's so many people that are really liking this concept now. The applications are overwhelming for a lot of these companies. And they're trying to ramp up their personnel for this, but they're a little behind. So it's taking a little longer. So I tell people all the time, the best case scenario, you can get this done in a week. The worst case scenario, it might take six months. And I'm not trying to scare you, but the normal thing is anywhere between I would say two and six weeks. Now, why does it take that long? And why can it take, why can it be really, really fast? Well, the, the reason it can be really, really fast is let's say you're a, a fairly young person, you know, 30, 35, 25, and you applied for um, some life insurance. 25, 30, 35 year olds, they, they generally are healthy because anything genetically hasn't come up yet. They haven't done things to their bodies like overeat, you know, so on and so forth that much. And so just from the application where it says, this is my height, this is my weight. Of course, you need a driver's license to help verify that, so on and so forth. And then they check your prescription drug record. They do a soft check on your credit. And they look at your driving record. Okay. Those are just basic things they do with everybody. If all those come up clean and there's nothing in your health history and you're not asking for too much death benefits and it, 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 it what is too much? Well, some companies it's only, it's anything over a million. 
uh, one company I know is it's uh, anything over seven million. Then they might offer you accelerated underwriting, and with accelerated underwriting, they will give you an offer. And that's key to all this thing because just because you make application and they give you an offer doesn't mean you have to accept the offer. You can. There's no. There's no cost to do this. I do say, well, there might be a little cost because if they end up, which the next part, we're going to talk about them actually sending out a nurse to do what's called a paramed. The cost would be uh, they're going to hook up an EKG to you. They're going to take some height and weight measurements. And more than likely, they're going to have a urine sample and a blood sample. So the, the cost would be some bodily fluids. But there's no monetary cost to this. And there's no obligation to it. So accelerated underwriting means that they would simply say, oh, you're, you're young, you're clean. Okay, here it is. So that could happen within a week. And you accept the offer or you modify the offer. The way you modify it isn't by your rating. And the rating could be what they call substandard. So a standard rating is what most people get. And when I, and when I say most, we're talking... 70, 75% of the people get a standard rating. Then there's substandard and different companies use different things, but basically it's two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight are B, C, D, E, F, G. I think once I've seen an H. And that just means they're going to apply more premium to your death benefit. Doesn't mean that it does, the infinite banking concept doesn't work, but they're going to apply because there's something in your health history that could make your life actually be a little shorter mortality-wise. Then on the other end, if you're really healthy, they might give you a preferred rating. And I think the last three that I did, I actually got a preferred rating. I'm not sure I can get a preferred rating now, uh, but I got a preferred rating. And then if you're really like in the top 3%, you can get a super preferred rating. And all these ratings really mean is how much death benefit you're going to get. It doesn't necessarily mean how much it's going to affect your cash value. So that's why when a person says, I'm 60 years old, or I'm 65 years old, or I'm 70 years old, I'm probably too old for this because the cost of the insurance would be too much. I say, well, there's a couple of things in, in cash value life insurance that actually help that. One, all they do is just don't give you as much death benefit, but the cash value still accumulates. And then also it's the net risk to the company. And we've done other podcasts on that. And that's not what we're here for today, but it's the net risk of the company is actually less as you accumulate cash value against the death benefit. So it still can work. I think the highest one I've ever done was on a 73-year-old. And I did one of my own father at 71. So, And I've done a couple other in, the, in 70 and several of them in the 60s. Um, and it, it works just fine. So that's accelerated underwriting. With, with the normal underwriting where they send a nurse out and do the things I just said, then it comes back, the results come back to the underwriter. Now, as you can imagine, this is a nurse and this is what she does or he does all day. They drive, they actually will come to you. They actually go to your home, your place of business, wherever they want you to come to. There's a coordination that needs to happen there. Um, and also you need to fast so to get the best results. 
So you, you do not want to eat after midnight. So there's a hard time a lot of people have to coordinate this person. So that might take a week or two after that. So now we might be in a two or three weeks. Then that person, you know, has to gather all the information and get it to the insurance company. They're pretty good about that, a couple of days at least. Then the underwriter has to look at it. And if there's any flags that come up, and what could be some flags that come up? You know, you could have a higher than normal um, blood sugar count. You could have a lower red blood cell, cell count. You could have um, something that is in your health history that they want additional information. So this is where it gets a little more complicated because now they're going to request what are called attending physician statements from your doctor. And basically, it's asking for the medical, your medical records. And you signed on the application that you were released these. So that is, you've already, you've already given the release. So they send the request to the doctor's office. Now, if any of you have been to your doctor's office lately, you've also seen that they have personnel problems. And even though they get paid to send these records out, they don't make a whole lot off of it. So do you think they're motivated <laughs> to actually send these out? They're not that motivated. So what they've done is to say, and instead of getting, and I don't know what it is today, I remember at one time it was $10 and then it went to 20 and then it went to 30. I think it's all the way up to $50. But the officers are, offices are saying it's not worth it. That $50 isn't worth it. So then they contract a service to come in either every two weeks or once a month. Well, if they requested and that person had just been there, the service had just been there the day before, now you got to wait another two weeks for the service to come back and actually get the record. And once the service gets the record, then they send it off. Now, so now we're at the accelerated underwriting one week. Uh, we're at, we're trying to get the pyramids scheduled. You know, you know, it could be two weeks to get the pyramids scheduled. Uh, then they look at it for a week. Then they ask for the attending physician statements. It might take a week or two. And then they get all this information. So now we're at about five weeks, six weeks. Now they look at it and they think, oh, the attending physician statements, there's some little red flags here too. And so then they say, you know what? We like this person. We're going to give you a standard rating or a substandard rating. They wouldn't do this for a preferred rating. But they're going to give you a standard or substandard rating. But we're a little nervous about this. And, and this is the part a lot of people have never heard about. So just listen up on this. There are companies out there that are called reinsurance companies. And they will actually take some of the the liability from a mutual company. So they'll say, okay, this death benefit is worth $2 million. You guys have established a premium of X, let's just say $20,000 a year. We will take a million dollars of that risk from you. And of course, they're going to get part of the premium too. So that's called reinsurance. If it goes to reinsurance, then their underwriters actually look at it. And then they will say, yes, we agree with you. And in some cases, they will say, no, we disagree with you. We're not taking this. And in other cases, 
they actually say, you know, we don't think this is that bad. We, you guys have given it a table rating of B. We think it's standard. So, you know, together, can we work this out? Since we're both taking a lower liability, then we'll give it standard rating. And so it's actually advantageous to do that. So now, if, if they go into reinsurance, they, they, they establish a rating. Let's just say it's standard. We get a notification from the company that your particular client has been approved, standard, most cases, non-tobacco nowadays. I, I think I've only seen a couple tobacco ratings in the last few years. And it's usually from, it's usually from smokeless tobacco or marijuana in the blood. And that's another thing we probably should talk about, Cole, is um, marijuana, because it's still a federal crime, but many states have said we're not going to follow this. Insurance companies have actually just, they just treat it like tobacco now. They don't treat it as an illegal drug. And I know a lot of people say, well, I take gummies or I, I vape so it's not smoke. Well, they can't tell that in your bloodstream which way you got the THC. So they just say, you got a smoker's rating because we don't know if you're smoking it or not. So that's how those work. Just same way with smokeless tobacco. So like if you're, you use chewing tobacco or snuff, they don't know whether you're smoking or not. And actually, the mortality tables actually show that that also has an effect on your life. Not as much as actually smoking a cigarette, but it does have an effect on your life. But they don't know how you're taking it in. So they just presume you're smoking it. And so you're getting a rating at that time. Now, once again, you've gotten this rating. You can accept the rating the way it is, or you could say, I want to modify my premium. And what does that mean? So let's say you had decided that you want to do $100,000 a year. And now you're like, you know what? I don't want to do $100,000. I think I only want to do 80. That's fine. All we have to do is submit an illustration at $80,000 a year, and we have to wait for them to issue it. It's not that big a deal. However, if you say, oh, I'm going to do $30,000 a year, and that's going to establish a death benefit of X, and now you come back and you say, you know, it's been six weeks, I've done more research, and I really like this concept, so... I am going to put more money in it. Let's put $50,000 a year in it. Insurance companies, it's not that easy now because one, you have a higher death benefit. And two, they're a little cynical. You know, they're like, why did you want to change it from 30 to 50,000? And remember, they don't know you personally. They're just looking at you as a number. So they're wondering, yeah, this doesn't make sense. Why all of a sudden 30 to 50? So it has to go back to underwriting again. And you have to then sign a statement of good health. Nothing has changed from the last time that we talked. And then they'll re-rate you at that higher level and might have to go back to reinsurance. So the moral of that story, Cole, is we should you should always apply for as much as you might think you should apply for. And you can always come down. The other way, it's a lot di more difficult. All right, Cole, I've been speaking for a while. Are there other things that 
uh, I have missed or you want to clarify? And I know you have, you get a lot of questions from clients, other questions that clients might, yeah. might have. Yeah. So one, one point I, I wanted to touch on um, whenever you're speaking about the rating is, you know, majority of clients get standard rating. <laughs> and oftentimes we find clients a little disappointed with that rating because they think it's, you know, substandard or not as good because you could get preferred or super preferred, but you always make a good point. And I'll let you, I'll let you say it about the standard rating and how it's actually better than you think it might be. Yeah. So this is, this is a little bit counterintuitive, but a standard rating is based upon the rating of everybody that is actually trying to get life insurance. But you, we all know people that would never even try to get life insurance, people that are very, very obese, people that have had cancer, people that have heart attacks, um, in some cases, people that have diabetes, you know, they're not even trying because they know they're so unhealthy. So they're not in that particular, the pool of evaluation. So, so a standard rating is a good rating. Don't let that, don't let that discourage you. Was there anything else, uh, Cole, that we need yeah, to hit so you've on? you've done a good job of walking them through, you know, the buying process, the underwriting application, the implementation process. I think now is a pretty good time to speak on, okay, you, you like the rating you got, you like the premium amount, you go forward with it. So now you actually have the policy. Now what? What, is, what can you expect from your producer? What can you expect from the policy? Very good. Before that, though, let's just finish because uh, I didn't talk about how you get it in place. Yes. So, so, you know, a lot of people are surprised nowadays, and I don't know why people would be surprised, but you can actually, because we work all across the nation and we work DocuSign, you can actually do an electronic fund transfer right from your bank account into the bank account of the insurance company. And it's called a PAW or pre-authorized withdrawal. So if you say, yeah, everything's good, let's go. I have a $30,000 a year premium. I want $30,000 transferred from my bank account to the, the bank account of the insurance company. We can just do a pre-authorization withdrawal. The company then, the insurance company actually requests that money to come from your particular bank. Now, this comes up a lot. People say, well, can I just write a check? Yes, you can. Can I wire the money? You can wire the money, but there's really no reason to do that. It's, it's an extra expense for you, so on and so forth. You have to go to the bank to do it. Um, other people will say, well, I'm going to send a certified check or a money order. That's the worst thing to do. Okay. And the reason for it is certified checks and money orders have a tendency uh, to be um, used in money laundering. So they actually want to see a personal check or a distribution directly from your bank to the insurance company's bank. So we can do that by DocuSign and it happens very quickly. So once you make payment, then you actually get the contract electronically along with the illustration. It typically takes about 20 to 21 days for this whole process to clear and get issued. And I also, I always tell a person, you know, 
really in about a 30 day period after your money leaves your bank. Um, and I don't understand the whole banking process, but even though the money leaves your bank, it's requested through an electronic funds transfer, it can be reversed and so on and so forth. So this is why it takes a while for this to happen. You will have access in about 30 days to your loan value. This is something that is not explained very often on the illustration is that the cash value on the illustration is not the loan value. And, it, and the loan value is typically anywhere between 90 and 94% of the cash value. So keep that in mind. And so now you have it fully implemented. You're, you own this. There's a free look period in every state. Typically, they're anywhere between 10 and 30 days. What does that mean? That means if you change your mind within whatever the, your state's regulations are, whether it's 10, 20, 30 days, you can actually request to send the contract back and get your money back uh, after that. If, I've never had anybody do that in, in my entire career. And maybe that's because I'm slow in the process to make sure everybody understands what's happening. But if you ever feel rushed by a producer for this, know that there is a free look period and it could be anywhere from 10 to 30 days in your particular state that you could change your mind. Just, re just remember that. Now, what Cole is saying is what's the next, the next part? Let's say now you want to implement the cash management system of infinite banking and you want to take a loan. This is another reason why you should ask these questions of the people you're working with. I just saw somebody on social media, big time social media presence yesterday. And he was talking about when you're ready to take a loan, either call the company yourself or fill out the information on their website. In other words, he's saying that you don't, once we sell this to you, you're on your own. And this happens a lot. And the way we've designed things is we actually have different people in place. And sure, you can go request a loan from the company if you want to call your on your own. Sure, you can use the website to request it. And I know a lot of my clients want to do that because if they come home late at night after work, 8 p.m., 10 p.m., 11 p.m., heck, I even had one guy tell me he did it at 2 a.m. He, he's able to do that uh, because they, they can't get a hold of us. Um, on the phone, of course, they can send an email at any time. But if so, if you decide to do that, go ahead, do it. You know, all power to you. But we're telling you, we're here for you. And if you want to request a loan, I just had a person request a loan from South America. We sent a DocuSign. We sent a DocuSign to request the loan. They give the bank information. They send a DocuSign back to us. We actually send it into the company. We know specifically who to send it to. And we follow up on the loan distribution to make sure it's happening and get into your, your bank account. Then we will sit down and do an amortization schedule for you to pay the loan back. Like we said, don't steal the piece. You want to repay your loan. Why? One, you're minimizing interest costs because interest that you're paying on a loan does go to the company, which is okay because you're part owner in a company, that's part of their profits. But 
the capital that you're paying back to your own contract. Plus, if you want to pay a little bit extra to the PUAs, in other words, charge yourself additional interest like Nelson talks about in his book, then you actually have more capital to use in the future and you have more capital that's compounding for you to have even more capital in the future. So you're making money on the money that you're making money on. It's, that's what compounding is. It's, it's a funny way of saying it, but uh, I had a client tell me that a long time ago. They said, they said, oh, so what you're saying is I'm making money on the money that I'm making money on. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that's the way you, you could say it. Sounds a little confusing, but <laughs> it made sense to them. So then you, you actually can have that um, electronically transferred from your bank account every month to the, to the company to actually pay the loan back. And you don't have to wait like that. If all of a sudden, if you want to make another big payment, you can make a, a big payment. If you want to cut the payment down, you can cut the payment down. If you want to stop the payment for a little bit, you can stop the payment for a little bit. Well, frankly, you can stop it. Yeah, I will. You don't even have to pay it, but that is not the way to be a good, honest banker to do that. But contractually, you don't have to pay the loan back. Um, but that's but you want to do that. But it can come right out of your bank account where you don't even have to think about it. And then every year on your anniversary date, they're going to tell you how much interest you paid on the loan that year. And because every year you're making, or every, excuse me, every month or every periodic time you're making the payment, your principal balance gets less and less, then your interest gets less and less. So example, let's say you have a $10,000 loan. Most of the companies we work with right now are 5% for their borrowing costs. So that would be $500. But as soon as you make the first payment, now you're at 9500 and now they're calculating the loan on only 9500 So as long as you're, as you're making consistent payments that year, you're going to find out at the end that you're actually paying less than $500. But if you have any additional loan out the next year, it's going to continue that plus any interest that they added to it. So that's why it also compounds. So you're compounding on your premium, but you're also compounding on your loan. And that's why we tell people you need to have really good um, dividends and the dividends are the base. And you also need to pay back your, your loans. And yet you need to have a plan. Some, some people's plans are paying them back all at one time. A lot of real estate people do that. They say, I'm going to flip this house. When I, get the, when I get the profits, I'm going to pay it back. I actually did that with one of my rental properties. Um, I, from the profits of the sale of the rental property, I actually paid one of my loans off. And so there are a variety of ways, but we will help you through that. We will help you through that process. And then you have that capital available for you again, and we will help you every step of the way, the best way to actually pay those loans back. You know, some people say, well, maybe I can use some of my qualified money, which is IRAs or 401ks. Maybe I should, maybe I should actually cash a little bit of that in to pay my loan back. And some people would say, don't do that because you're going to pay more in taxes. And I say, how do you know that unless you actually do the evaluation? So I'm also an investment advisor. We have a tax team 
in our building, we can actually um, get some advice from them, whether it makes sense to do that. So we're going to look at all the aspects of your financial picture to actually help you determine how quickly and the best way to pay the loans back. So Cole, that is loans. I think we only have one more topic before we want to end today. Is there anything else though, as I've been speaking that you think we ought to hit today? No, I think you've, you've hit it, uh, the nail on the head. I think it's, uh, important to have a producer that's there every step of the way because inevitably once the policy's in place there you're going to have different questions come up um, whether it be in your your personal economy or with the policy in particular that you didn't foresee coming prior to implementing the policy yeah very 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 good and it's another thing and it might sound like we're very proud of this and bragging but you know we always have multiple people that are involved in the process. And, you know, if you're a 30 year old now or a 35 year old and you're saying, well, you know, I'm, this is going to be a part of my life for the next 50, 60, 70 years. And Bruce is quite a bit older. What's going to happen to him? Or Riley's quite a bit older. Cole's one of the younger ones. We have younger people. So, even though I'm not going to be involved next necessarily into the future because people stop listening to me and when I'm getting close to 80. We have other people that are are that you've met, that you understand, and they'll just keep the ball running. I I've I've talked about this on um podcast before. I did a talk at the Nelson Nash Institute one year called How to Make Infinite Banking Infinite. And the premise is how you pass on your death benefit death benefit to the next generation. And this is what Rachel's working on right now, a legacy program. And this is part of the Nelson Nash Institute's way of thinking. And then that next generation should already have policies. And then that death benefit can either fill up the policies or you can buy additional policies on that next generation. And then the next generation just rinses and repeats and does that. Um, going forward. So before I go to the final thing, which is the death benefit, Cole, um, Jay Mees on YouTube says, what kind of fees, fee structures can a policyholder expect to pay the money advantage? So we're we're no different than anybody else. Um, we get paid by the insurance companies. And so the insurance companies, human, they have structures and they do, they do not um, they do not discriminate. They have their they have their base fee structure, and then depending on how the design is, uh, it goes up and down. And Jasmine, uh, Jay's Mees, I'm sorry, it, uh, it's very small print. I can't, but I believe it's Jay's Mees. Uh, fees are important. There's no doubt about it. Okay, but I always tell a person if you get what you want, why do fees matter? Okay. And, and I used this example before, but, you know, I had a concrete driveway that um, I got bids on and the lowest bid plus the value, because I, I did my research. Um, there was a slightly lower bid, but the bid, the lowest bid that I had value was $16,000. Well, I've been around rental property and construction with my real estate holdings, and I knew how much a how much concrete they were going to use. And I'm thinking, and I, and I knew the day that they brought eight people to work on it. And I'm looking at the labor because this is what I do. I, 
I have several businesses and I, I do business consulting. And I'm like, man, you know, that profit margin is pretty good. I didn't think, oh, he's ripping me off. I actually thought, oh, my, I might get in the construction industry because this is a really good profit margin. But see, what happens is people look at that fee for just that, that transaction, that one transaction. They don't, they don't see for the fact that that particular owner is working to find more concrete driveways to do. He's increasing his, his knowledge of how concrete cures, how, how to find the best personnel. So he spends time doing that, which is not. We do the same thing. Every producer does the same thing. You increase your knowledge. So you're not, you're not paying the person just to implement that particular contract in those few times that you might meet with them. Heck, it might take two times where you meet with them for 90 minutes and they might get paid $5,000 for that. And people think, well, how can you, I get paid $5,000 for meeting for 90 minutes? Well, you're not paying me for 90 minutes. You're paying me for 30 plus years of experience. And know what to hat, what to do, and what and how to adjust when things don't go well. So, the fees in a whole life contract, there is an index that you can compare one company to the other. But even there, that's you know, there's they can change their fees along the way. They can't change the cost of the insurance uh, from the base policy because that's in the contract. But they can change their fees a little bit if necessary. And the PUAs are actually the cost of insurance goes up every year because they don't know if you're going to pay your PUAs or not. You can find out and you can compare what your cost is if you understand that lack of liquidity is a cost. And we could go over that with you. So, Jay's means I don't know if I answered that question for you, but um, I hope I did. And like I said, if you get what you want, why are fees you know, that important? Um, because all the companies basically have the same commission structure. Some of them fake it a little bit. What I say fake it, what I mean is they might not give you as much fees up front, commission fees, but then they have a health plan that you, you are in. They have a 401k plan that you're in. They might have a disability plan that you're in, or they might have a, a cash balance plan, which is a, like a pension plan that you're in. So, they're all basically paying the same amount. So to try to determine you're going to use this company because that particular person's getting paid a little bit less, you're not going to be able to see that on the illustration or either or or an actual uh, production into the future. Remember, these companies have been around for 118 to 170. I guess the oldest one we use is 176 years. So. You don't stay around that long because you don't have good business practices, is my point. So thank you for the question. All right, Cole, you have any questions on your end? Uh, I do not. So, okay. So, because uh, I know you're looking at some other social media than what I'm looking at, but okay. So the, the final part, as we wrap up the show, is um, the death benefit. And this is pretty easy. <laughs> Somebody dies, the death benefit goes to the beneficiary. And that beneficiary gets the death benefit tax-free no matter what. Even if you make the policy, the, the, the death benefit goes um, tax-free. And you might do that for uh, estate, uh, estate planning purposes. So 
then we would suggest that you've already talked to the next generation. That next generation knows what they're going to do with the death benefit. Hopefully that is to enhance their legacy with the whole life. And you just rinse and repeat and go further and further along. So that was an hour's worth of what's next. Cause we find people that are, we find people that are excited about the strategy. And then all of a sudden you start talking about the nitty gritties of how you actually put in, put this in place. And they're like, what, what am I doing now? So we thought this would be a good podcast to do so that people could understand uh, the entire pr- process from the very beginning to the very end. So in closing, Cole, is there anything else you want to add or you think we've, we missed uh, on this podcast? No, I think uh, you did a great job. I think definitely this will help clients who know they want to implement policy, but they would just want to know more about the next steps and what to look for in you know, an insurance company, a policy, and a producer. Yeah. And so thanks for everybody for listening. If you like this information, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the notifications so you don't miss these. We have a lot of uh, great guests on. We've been doing this for over five years. There's 300 plus episodes. And uh, I think you're going to get a lot of what we consider as non-biased because we don't talk about the insurance companies, you know, so on and so forth. We're just trying to give you education on this so that you can move forward. And uh, that way you'll be informed every time uh, new information comes out. So in closing, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and live a life and business that you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.